When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Heard Tell. Our buddy from over yonder, Ben Harris, is back. He rolls around in the halls of Parliament over there in Westminster, so we always enjoy talking to him. Good to see you, buddy. Glad to have you back on the program. Thanks, Andrew. Good to be on, as always. I uh, love having you. Uh, we got a couple things we're going to talk about, but uh, let's start with the politics side of it. Um, we covered a couple weeks ago with our buddy Jack, Um you know, there, there's been a few things that have been in Rishi Sunak's control. There's a few things that are not in his control. All of them seem to be converging all at once lately. We've had the school scandal with the concrete, which really was, mm -hmm. it was bad for a lot of reasons, but but kind of, it was almost like a breaking point where just everything kind of hit all at once and, you know, yeah. the streams all crossed. It just, uh, you know, you start screwing with people's kids in schools, that, that goes beyond the politics. Now everybody's mad, that sort of thing. Yeah. Now, on top of that, we got this Chinese spy scandal. For the folks that weren't really following, you know, in America, we're really touchy about China. We know undue influence of China and Russia and others. We know London is kind of a hotbed for a lot of this stuff. Walk folks through this Chinese spy scandal that has now uh, enveloped a lot of the conversation. Yet another bad thing folks don't want to talk about, but just get everybody up to speed on it. So, essentially, someone who does my job um was was discovered to have been or was, was acute allegedly has uh been spied for china and was arrested back in not March, you like you have your flaws but just to be clear this is not you you did not know nope. this no 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 but someone who does my sort of job um he does you know the same sort of job title uh who he was arrested back in march for allegedly spying for china he denies allegations and um yeah there's a current investigation into that and um there, there have also been previous cases i think of chinese spies um working or with parliament passes or working close to MPs and I think because we have so many MPs we've got 650 MPs it's 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 not hard if you're trying to just slip one or two through the net uh, and that's the problem we've been having uh, I mean China also we are a lot more skeptical of China now than we used to be uh, under George Osborne and David Cameron the government was a bit too close to China and it's good that in, in the years since we have realized that that was a big mistake um, but yeah China, Rishi Sunak is a bit of a China dove. He's not. He's not very hawkish on China. He, he's obviously. He's not nowhere near as close as David Cameron, George Osborne were. But he is. He is reluctant. It seems to take a hard, a hard stance on China, which is unfortunate. Now, how much of this? Let's be fair to the Prime Minister for just a second. His background, the way you know, he's a businessman. Um, he's you know, he's probably one of the wealthiest prime ministers y'all have ever had. Independently wealthy. He was educated in the States. He's he's very, you know, he's how much of that's just kind of his worldview and personality. I know he's dovish on it 
I don't know that he thinks of it first and foremost as a foreign policy issue. I think he thinks of China in a business sense. But that is a viewpoint that is widespread across the globe where they just see China in a sort of a business sense and don't naturally go to them as a geopolitical foe. Is that part of the problem with his outlook and why it's clashing when you have a story of this? Like, no, they're just not, you know, a huge economy to do business with. They also have a dictatorship that does a lot of really malicious things in the world. Uh, I think there is definitely an element of that. And that's a good point. But also, I think this is what you have to remember very soon, like in almost everything he does, is that he was chancellor and he has what we call treasury brain. He, uh, the chancellor, the, the treasury has a very, a very odd way of looking at things. Um, and of course he used to be chancellor. And I think he essentially sees China with his treasury, treasury hat still on, which is money. And that's all they really care about the treasury. And I think he has brought that to number 10 somewhat. So he, he will see, he sees, like you said, he sees China as a business thing. And I think part of his upbringing and where, where he comes from and sort of the money he's been involved in, but also partly, I think that's because he was chancellor for several years. And I think he sees it as he looks at things like Theresa May, for example, was a good example of someone on the other side. She was home secretary for six years. And I think she often saw things through a security lens. Rishi Sunak sees things through a business uh, sort of treasury lens. And I think that's what you have to look at when you when you look at prime ministers and what their previous jobs were. Yeah, and this isn't the first China headline. Uh was about a year or two ago. We went through the whole thing with the UK where they were trying to extract Huawei and the Chinese influence out of some of the infrastructure with the Wi-Fi and yeah. the broadband and that sort of thing. So this, this is something that's kind of fresh in people's mind. When you talk about treasury brain, this is where these things start combining, where he was in charge of things, you know, schools fell under his preview. The previous uh, controversies with China and the Wi-Fi and the broadband, that fell under his preview. Now this is a, you know, another thing that was previously under his preview that's coming back to bite him as prime minister. This, you know, this happens to politicians, all politicians, when they're, you know, on the wrong side of the hill of political opinion. This stuff just seems to be avalanching on Richie Sunak right now. Like, if it can go wrong, it goes wrong, and it's showing up. In fact, yeah. But in fairness to him, actually, the concrete stuff is obviously is partly his responsibility, but also it, it's, it, from what I can gather, it's a, it's a long-running issue, which successive governments on both sides have failed to deal with. And it's just he's just been unlucky that it's just come out under his watch. Um, so I wouldn't blame him. I blame him partly for that, but I actually blame previous governments just as much. So uh, I think he's been very unfortunate there. Um, but you're right. You know, we're, we're, it doesn't doesn't rain; it pours, and it doesn't be doing that for for Sunak in the last uh, year or so since since to become prime minister. You raised an interesting point a little bit ago, Ben Harris. Uh, people argue about the parliamentary system and the American system and how different they are, good and bad. There's there's you know points for both. You just mentioned there are a ton of MPs. You have something like 240 more MPs than we have members of Congress, and of course, population wise, much bigger country, much bigger. Are there is is here's a term they you know Richie Sunak you know right sized does Parliament need right sized or thought rethought because it seems like y'all got a lot of MPs and it, is it unwieldy does there need to be some reform there is anybody even thinking about that uh, Yes, actually, it's funny you should mention that there is going to be reform on that. So I think at the next election there's been new boundaries drawn, and I think Parliament will be actually. Uh, reduced from 650 MPs to 600 MPs. So it's going to lose 50 MPs, which of course isn't a massive amount, but um, it does, it is, we are, we are cutting it down a bit and that's good. 
But of course, that is leading to problems now where certain seats are being in the boundary changes, certain seats like your district changes, certain seats are being abolished or merged into one. And you've got a situation now where two, two sitting MPs, perhaps even the same party, are going for the same seat. Uh, so that has led to some, some uh, issues there. My boss's seat isn't really changing much, but there are lots of seats where they are changing quite a lot and you know, MPs are losing out. <laughs> Yeah, Ben Harris joining us. This leads us to the uh, elephant in the room that's hanging over all of UK politics right now. When's there going to be a general election? Um, we've, we've been talking about this before, and like, I think the calculus for the Conservatives and Richie Sunak, I think their calculus has now changed. They were trying to just kind of wait it out and find some kind of sliver of good news and then call an election and hope for the best. Are we in rip the bandaid off mode now where they're just going to have to do it? You've had 12 years now of them in power. There's just a 13. lot of inertia. You know, it, are we in rip the bandaid off mode now with them that they're just going to have to kind of pick their spot and take their medicine? Is that how they're starting to see it? Uh, I'm not sure. I think at the moment, I think they're still in. Let's wait. Let's just keep it as long as possible. Because I think the main issue still is cost of living and inflation, which is which is going down finally. But it's not going down as fast as I think instead of hoped. So um, I think they will just wait it out. And I think inflation is the big thing. And I think at the moment it's about 6% possibly. I'm not sure exactly what the, the level is. It's definitely a lot lower than it was a few months ago. But it's taken take a while to filter down. So I think they will probably, uh, from what I've heard, it seems to be autumn next year will be, will be the year. Usually it's, it's May. Elections, elections are usually done in May when they're called but i think it'll be it can be up to any any point up to january 2025 so i think it will be autumn 2024 is looking likely um, unless something unless there's loads of good news between now and then and they just decide to do it then don't know Ben Harris joining us. All right, let's hit a couple of the big issues going on in the UK. The immigration thing is still there and just is not going to go away. There's this, there's a, there's a macro problem and a micro problem with the immigration debate. The, the larger issue is the UK has a demographics problem and a population problem. And then they have a political problem where immigration is really hot button issue. That's a bad combination, my friend. Yeah, um, no, it is. And I mean, we, we, our, our demographic problem is similar to many, many European countries. Uh, I don't think people realize that birth rates are just not what they used to be. And that, you know, without we, we do need at least some level of immigration. Uh, but I think the, the problem actually, the bigger problem actually now is not so much immigration levels. It's the illegal migrant crossings, which actually, you know, the, 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 those are two separate issues. The, 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 the legal, legal immigrants that come in is a separate issue from the illegal migrant crossings over the channel. And I think the government has been severely damaged by the fact they've just failed to get uh, a grip on the, the migrant crossings. But a part of it is out of their own hands, because for example, they tried the, the Rwanda plan where they, they were going to send illegal migrants that cross the channel to Rwanda, uh, in like to, to sort of, um, so, so their cases could be heard there. But um, the European Court of Human Rights put stop to that. So the, the government is, has has its hands tied a little bit and i, I don't really know how to get around it ben harris joining us another issue um again not unique to the uk certainly but one that's a problem 
you talked a little bit about inflation and it has a lot to do with this, but big problems with things like housing, cost of living. Mm-hmm. We've talked to you, you've been on this program for almost three years now. Every time you're on here, it seems like we got to talk about cost of living. Look, you're one of those, you work in parliament, you have a pretty long commute when you want to go home and see the family, you have to deal with things like this. Where are we at with the housing and living crisis? Because it doesn't seem like it's really improving. The inflation's going up and down. That'll affect it a little bit. But the core problems of just not having enough housing in the right places and the infrastructure thereof doesn't seem to have really improved much. Well, this actually touches on a key issue. So this, this, in my opinion, supersedes inflation. It supersedes government. It supersedes both parties. We have a problem in this country of nimbyism, of nimbyism and a low growth mindset. People do not want things built uh, in their own backyards. And that is the simple fact. And it's so hard. The planning system here is gives too much power to people who want to stop development in the local areas. And we've had decades of low house building, which has not been able to meet demand. And that's why we have a housing crisis right now. It's, it's, an, issue, so it's an issue that goes way beyond the current government or any government. Uh, and actually, I think it's almost a societal problem. People in this country are just... They're just people, lots of people who just want to block things and we don't like change or any sort of growth or development or building. And it's hard to get stuff built. I mean, I think it, it, look at HS2. It's taken so many years just to go through consultations there and it's barely, the progress is so slow. Heathrow, we're supposed to have an extra runway there about a decade ago and we're still going through these these laborious legal uh, consultations. And it's just, yeah, it's a size problem. I don't really know how to get around it. Yeah, for the American and the international audience that aren't familiar with it, Where's the bottle gap at at that? Because it's one thing for people to not want to change, but there's a legal... Is it at the local council levels? Is it at the local government levels? Yeah. Larger government? Because the way England and the UK specifically is run, those those local governments have enormous power when it comes to things like development and growth and build. It's just a little bit of a different system. Kind of walk folks through that. Well, so yeah, local local councils and local governments have a lot of power to stop things. And there was a particular, a particular ridiculous example recently where uh, there was a military base. I think it was actually in my county of Kent, and um, they were training Ukrainian soldiers there because obviously we train lots of Ukrainian soldiers, and they'll go out to Ukraine, and we we give them the training that they need. And there was some people complained that the military, their local military base, their live fire drills were too loud, and so they had to cut down on the number of live fire drills they were doing with these Ukrainian soldiers because of some complaints. And it's just insane that our, our, whole, our whole foreign policy, and we've done this well, is geared around helping Ukraine. And a local council has basically been able to stymie some of that because of because of the you know the system. And it's, it's, it's absurd. Yeah, don't let those folks ever live anywhere near Fort Bragg now, Fort Liberty. They would not enjoy <laughs> exactly. all, the, all the live fire that you can hear for miles because that thing's the size of Rhode Island. Uh, ben Harris joining us. One more thing on the UK politics and then we'll move off it. But um, not a lot of talk, but a lot of our friends that we talk to, your peer group that's a little bit younger than me. Is there a danger of Britain having a little bit of a brain drain? Because a lot of the they're already talking about t- trying to reform maybe how university exams and things like that are done. It seems like a lot of that rising working class, the upper classes, the educated class, a lot of them are starting to think about maybe going abroad. They seem a little stymied. This is where that housing issue really starts hitting because, you know, you have to be 25 to 30. You don't want to be living with mom and dad anymore. And a lot of them are having to just out of, you know, not even having anywhere to go. Hmm. Is there a danger in that? Because if you're going to have demographic problems, if you start having a brain drain out of that class of folks, that's going to perpetuate a lot of other problems. Is there any movement to kind of start addressing some of that? Because that's your own very peer group. You've seen some of this. 
Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a gro- I've definitely seen people my age as a growing sort of sense of well, this country doesn't offer much for young people, and wages here are relatively low, especially compared to the US. Wages wages here are ridiculously low, and um, but are the government doing anything about it? No, because at the end of the day, um, it's the old people that vote, and all the parties, just to a certain extent, are in hock to uh, sort of uh, house homeowning pensioners, and they are they always will will prioritise them. So, for example, we've got this thing called the triple lock which is that state pensions um, have to rise by, I think it's the rate of inflation, um, something else and something else. And basically, which, whichever, whichever rate is, is high is what, is what that right rises by. And the government are still not abolishing the triple lock. The, the opposition are gonna, not going to abolish the triple lock. And it's just um, essentially, they, they, in terms of what the government offers to young people, they offer very little, whereas pensioners do get a lot. They get a lot of, and obviously I understand some, some pensioners are in poverty, but they do get pensioners as a whole, even ones that are quite well off, do get a lot of benefits that they simply don't need. And the government has always been very geared to some people describe the UK as like a retirement home of nuclear weapons. And I think that's a great way of putting it. Um, we are a retirement home of nuclear weapons. We are set up around the elderly and there's just simply nothing for young people. Yeah, you're not the only country that we've got, of course, our own issues with you know, things like Social Security here in America. That's going to, you know, it's a time bomb waiting to go off. So it's not unique, but y'all are definitely going to have to deal with that. Ben Harris joining us. Okay, buddy, let's fight about it. Um, Rishi Sunak decided to come out and advocate for a ban for the the Bully XL dogs. Now, pit bulls are already banned in the UK, from what I understand. Um, this is a new one. Look, I'm a pit bull owner. I got one. Um, let me start here, though. Before we get into the particulars, was there any version of this that's not a, a floundering politician pandering for a cheap pop in the press? Because that's kind of how that's felt before you even get into the details of it. Now, I, I've been a big critic of Richard Sunak, and I'm criticizing for lots of things, but this was a good decision. My criticism would be he should have done it earlier, because these dogs, and this is this is a, a particular subbreed of the pit bull, as I understand it. Um, so this is yes, not, it, is. It, it, it wouldn't be, I, your dog, I don't think, would even come under this, 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 this it's basically these, these American XL bully dogs are. From what I understand, they were introduced a few years ago, and about half of them are descended from the same dog, the same violent dog. And it's basically that they're very inbred, and it's a very, as I said, it's a subset of the pit bull. It's a very particular subset, niche subset here in the UK. And they're responsible for about half of all attacks on humans and other dogs, despite comprising less than 1% of the UK population. And that is a huge uh, statistical it's ridiculous. I mean, it, it, they, they dwarf all other dogs in terms of how dangerous they are. Um, and there's been calls to ban them for a while now and i think it's just reached there's been a few attacks and i think it's just reached fever pitch now and the government realized it had to do something uh you're probably, you're probably right it probably was done because they wanted just they're floundering and they wanted to just latch onto something that might give them some popularity but nonetheless it was the right thing to do because this is a very dangerous dog breed and people don't realize that um it doesn't matter how well you train them these this particular dog these particular dogs are inherently aggressive and they were bred for aggression and fighting 
And there have been lots of cases of, of well-behaved dogs like this who have just snapped one day randomly and killed a toddler or killed an adult. And um, I don't really see why should we why should we have this situation continuing? They they they, they kill disproportionately, and there's just no there's no there's no there's no need for it. Yeah. So the, this particular breed, um, which is bred in the UK, they started, as far as we can tell, sometime in the '90s. Again, I'm a I'm I'm an owner of a of a Pitbull that would not fall under this specific band. It would fall under the wider band, though, because it is a Staffordshire, American Staffordshire. Um, here's the deal with this. I get it. You have individual dogs that get uh, aggressive. They have to be euthanized. I get that. I had to euthanize one of my dogs years ago because they got uh, brain tumor things just started acting weird. You know, you just have to put them down. There's nothing you can do about it because, you know, they can get aggressive and dangerous. Yeah. I don't like the bands of the breed, even though I understand this is, look, this breed did not decide to do this. They were designed by a human being to do this. Yeah, it's not anytime, their fault. No. Yeah, you have a breed. Anytime you go, for, and people here want to do a, a pit bull ban in America, you hear it from time to time. There's never, ever been an example of dog breed that did something untoward that if you don't go far enough, you find the malfeasance and or neglect and or bad behavior of a human being somewhere in there. So I think we go to the bands too quick without dealing with the human behavior. I get UK's different. You know, I'm not going to bash y'all system because it's a little different. I understand this is a very specific extreme example of it, which is a little different than just the wider, you know, breed bands we see in America. Yeah. But I think it's worth pointing out, look, these are human beings that decided to make these dogs be this way. Wow. That's the behavior you should be targeting legally. Yeah, oh yeah, certainly. And and any any ban would have to have a would have to have a focus and a crackdown on these breeders that, that breed this stuff. because um, we have to obviously tackle the problem at source because obviously what we don't want to happen is this this dog ban this dog breed to be banned and then ten years down the line some some nefarious breeders come up with some other dog which is also just as dangerous. Because like, as you say, it, it is it is it's not the dog's fault, it's the the, pe- the breeder's fault. And we do have to tackle the root causes of it. And I just hope that you know, the legislation does do that. And I hope that it's you know successful in that and that it's hard for, for criminals and those types to get around the ban. Yeah, Ben Harris joining us. Okay, it's not all doom and gloom in the UK, though. There are some good things going. You're in Parliament. You're plugged in. Give folks, especially those of us across the pond who are looking for uh, you know any kind of a relief from our own news, so we look at yours. Give us one or two things to look in the headlines, some positive news that's coming out of the UK, some good things that are actually happening, bounce this all, because it kind of looks like y'all and us are going to be having election season at the same time. We're not going to get the usual relief of making fun of the other because we're going to have a hot mess at the same time. Give us two or three good headlines to be looking for in the coming days. I think one of the good things, it's not, it's not a headline as such, more just as a general situation, is that despite all the issues that we have, Compared to uh, mainland Europe, we're still quite good at uh, being resistant to extremist parties. So you look at France, for example. Uh, Marine Le Pen is probably the favourite to be the next president of France. Uh, you know, the National Rally Party are far right, hard right. They are definitely extreme. And likewise, in Germany, the AfD, they're also extremists, and they, they're getting 20, 30% in the polls occasionally, I think. And likewise, they've got a far left party, the left, they're called, and they also get about 10% in the polls. And we simply don't have that here. So here it's Conservatives or Labour. As much as, I, as much as I rip on Conservatives and Labour, both parties, neither of them are extreme. 
certainly not Labour under, under Starmer. As much as I don't like Starmer, he's not like Corbyn, he's not an anti-Semite, he's not extremist. And I feel like in terms of extremism, we still are quite resistant to that. Uh, when there's lots of, lots of countries in Europe where they do have growing extremist parties on far left and far right, we do tend to resist that. And, and obviously we've got, we've got an unpopular Tory government, but what will, that, what will that lead to? It will lead to a centre-left Labour government. And when they're unpopular, we'll get a centre-right Tory government. And we just don't have the same kind of uh, tendency to flip towards extremes as a lot of countries do. And that's a good thing. And it, we, we, we've still managed to weather that quite well. Yeah, Ben Harris, always enjoy catching up with you, my friend. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you till we get you back on Hertel again. The next time something crazy happens over there, we got to talk about. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, ben Harris, appreciate you, my friend. We'll talk soon. I'm going to link to all this. We'll put his Twitter up there as well. Take care, buddy. Thank you. Thanks. See you later. Yes, sir. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Hertel program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, Head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.